Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi, and welcome back to our conversation about Zionism in Israel. In this segment, we're going to look at the 1950s, looking at the 1950s, not in terms of what happened inside Israel, but now a little bit more at Israel's foreign policy. First thing to know about the 1950s is that even though the War of Independence was already long over, Israel's borders were incredibly porous. And there were, this number is correct, you're hearing it right, there were tens of thousands of cross-border incursions into Israel every year which means that if there's only 356 days in a year, obviously, there were many, many incursions across the border all the time. Some of them were just for people to want to try to get back to the farmlands that they had lost. Others were an attempt to steal. Others were an attempt to actually do bodily harm. But Israel was aware that it was an entirely in a defensive posture that it really couldn't maintain for much longer. Uh, the real breaking point came at a certain point when a woman named Susan Kanis who was 32 years old, when she and her three children were at home in a little town, not too far from where the airport is today, actually, on a place called Yehud, uh, when Palestinians crossed the border through a grenade into her house, killing her and two of her children. And that kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back and let Israelis know that something really needed to change. What happened then is that the IDF began to go on a much more aggressive, proactive posture, and one of the first things that it did was to create what was called Unit 101 with Ariel Sharon, who will eventually become Israel's prime minister, but also a very divisive personality even before that, uh, at the helm of this division. And it is going to launch into all kinds of cross-border raids and chase people down and punish the villages of anybody uh, who, who, who causes damage inside Israel. It's a very controversial unit. Some of the members of the unit actually refused to participate in some of its operations. But there was one particular incident in a village in Kibia across the border where Unit 101 actually caused, apparently accidentally, or at least not 100% by intent, but not entirely without intent at the same time, a large number of innocent deaths in a Palestinian village. This caused a tremendous outcry in Israel. Also, interestingly enough, caused an outcry among American Jewish leaders. Now, nobody really knows the name of the Kibia incident, but it's one of the first instances that we can point to uh, where we see the leadership of American Jews begin to say to Israel, whoa, there is a limit to the kind of military actions that you can take that we're going to feel comfortable with. Something else is very interesting that's happening, especially in the early 1950s. And this is a different side of the story. There is an Israeli writer named Samech Izhar, who was a soldier in the War of Independence. Uh, and he writes a book called Khirbet Chiza, which is a fictitious name of a Palestinian village. And he tells, again, an entirely made-up story about how Israeli soldiers took the village in the War of Independence. 
But even though the actual facts about this particular village were all fictitious, he was capturing something about what had happened in that war. We talked at great length in previous segments about the large number of Palestinians who were forced in various ways to leave the land during the War of Independence. And Samach Yizhar, an Israeli writer, a Zionist committed to the state, writes a book in which he is bitterly critical of some of the things that were done to the Arabs in the War of Independence. Now, why do I mention this particular book? Because after Samach Yizhar writes this book, very critical of Israel's conduct during the War of Independence, at least two important things happen. One of which is that he becomes a very important member of the Knesset. And the second of which is, is that his book, that same book that was so critical of Israel, is actually entered into the required curriculum of Israeli schools for a while. And I point this out just to have everyone see how different the culture in Israel about self-critique was from the culture of critique outside of Israel. To this very day, uh, if you live in the Palestinian Authority and what's commonly called the West Bank, and you post on Facebook something negative about Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, uh, you can be carted off to jail and bad things can happen to you in jail. Obviously in Israel, anybody can post anything they want on Facebook. And obviously, even more importantly, uh, books like Khir Berchiza, which were so critical of Israel a long time ago, didn't get their authors cast to the side, but actually propelled them into the very center of Israeli politics and even Israeli education. I want to point to one other famous incident, which is really important for understanding Israel's mindset, which, take place, which takes place in uh, April of 1956. There is a small kibbutz called Nachal Oz, which is on the Gaza border, and uh, a young man named Roe Rothberg had left Tel Aviv to go live in Nachal Oz and to become a farmer. It was part of that early Zionist, idealistic, agricultural dream. Uh, and he is actually out on his horse one day and is patrolling the fields and he goes to see what seems to him to be a little bit strange. It was actually an ambush uh, and he is captured and killed and his body is mutilated and it's returned to Nachal Oz the very same day after the UN intervenes. Totally coincidentally, Moshe Dayan, who was already um, the chief of staff of the army in 1956, had met Roe Rotberg just a couple of days before in a complete coincidence, and he heard that Rotberg had been killed, and he went to Nachal Oz to give the eulogy for Roe Rotberg's funeral. And Moshe Dayan's eulogy for Roe Rotberg, which again he gives in April of 1956, uh, becomes a kind of a classic brief battlefield speech, even though of course it wasn't on a battlefield itself, uh, that's very similar to what the Gettysburg Address becomes in the United States. The Gettysburg Address is actually 272 words, and uh, Diane's eulogy for Roe Rotberg was 238 words. They are very, very similar, very brief, very short, and very poignant. And I actually want to take a minute just to read you uh, that particular very brief eulogy to show you something about how similar were the views of the right and the left in Israel at that time. So Dayan says as follows, Early yesterday morning, Roe was murdered. The quiet of the spring morning dazzled him, and he did not see those waiting in ambush for him at the edge of the furrow. Let us not cast blame on the murderers today. Why should we declare their burning hatred for us? For eight years, they have been sitting in the refugee camps in Gaza, and before their eyes, we have been transforming the lands and the villages where they and their fathers dwelt into our estate. It is not among the Arabs in Gaza, but in our own midst, that we must seek Roe's blood. 
How did we shut our eyes and refuse to look squarely at our fate and see in all its brutality the destiny of our generation? Have we forgotten that this group of young people dwelling in Nachalos is bearing the heavy gates of Gaza on its shoulders? Beyond the furrow of the border, a sea of hatred and desire for revenge is swelling, awaiting the day when serenity will dull our path for the day when we will heed the ambassadors of malevolent hypocrisy who call upon us to lay down our arms. Roe's blood is crying out to us, and only to us, from his torn body. For although we have sworn a thousandfold that our blood will not flow in vain, yesterday again we were tempted, we listened, and we believed. We will make our reckoning with ourselves today. We are a generation that settles the land, and without the steel helmet and the cannon's maw, we will not be able to plant a tree and build a home. But let us not be deterred from seeing the loathing that is inflaming and filling the lives of hundreds of thousands of Arabs who live around us. Let us not avert our eyes, lest our arms weaken. This is the fate of our generation. This is our life's choice, to be prepared and armed, strong and determined, lest the, store, the sword be stricken from our fist and our lives cut down. The young Roe who left Tel Aviv to build his home at the gates of Gaza to be a wall for us was blinded by the light in his heart and did not see the flash of the sword. The yearning for peace deafened his ears and he did not hear the voice of murder waiting in ambush. The gates of Gaza weighed too heavily on his shoulders and overcame him. This is Moshe Dayan, one of the darlings of the left, a leader of the Labor Party, a colleague of David Ben-Gurion's, he is the one who was saying that we Israelis have to understand that the deep seas of hatred across the border are getting deeper and deeper, and it's because we are continuing to build and make something out of this land, whereas they did not in the same way do that. Anachalos is still a kibbutz today in 2020, and one of Israel's most recent wars, a four-year-old named Daniel Turgeman, was I think the latest casualty of Nachaloz. Not a tremendous amount has changed since 1956, but that was Moshe Dayan, the head of the Israeli left, or one of the heads of the Israeli left, who gave that eulogy. And I just want to compare that briefly to something that we've talked about before, which was Zev Jabotinsky, the origin or the, the originator of the revisionist movement, much more to the right, and what he had said in his Iron Wall essay of the early 1920s. Here's what he had said. As long as the Arabs feel that there is the least hope of getting rid of us, they will refuse to give up this hope in return for either kind words or bread or butter because they are not a rabble but a living people. And when a living people yields in matters of such vital character, it is only when there is no longer any hope of getting rid of us because they can make no breach in the iron wall. Not till then will they drop their extremist leaders whose watchword is never. And when that leadership comes to pass to a moderate group who will then approach us with a proposal that we should both agree to mutual concessions, then we may expect them to discuss honestly practical questions such as a guarantee against Arab displacement or equal rights for Arab citizens or national integrity. But the only way to obtain such agreement is the Iron Wall, which is to say a strong power in Palestine, because this is before the state, of course, that is not amenable to any Arab pressure. In other words, the only way to reach an agreement in the future is to abandon all idea of seeking an agreement at present. It's as if Dayan was channeling Jabotinsky, which he wasn't. He was just channeling what was really an emerging, sad, resigned Israeli ethos, which is that the people on the other side of this border 
are simply never going to accommodate themselves to our being here. And the minute we listen to the words of those who would say, why don't you just compromise now, Diane says, that's the minute we're going to become naive, and that's the minute that the light in our hearts will cause us not to see the flash of the sword. In any event, it's important to understand that part of Israel for what's going to come a little bit later. Meanwhile, to the south of Israel, there are also other really important developments that we need to track very quickly. In 1952, Gamal Abdul Nasser overthrows King Farouk of Egypt. And Nasser was one of those people who had been saying all along that the Arab countries would be back for a second round. They were not going to recognize Israel. They were not going to sign peace treaties with Israel. Uh, they would be back to destroy Israel. Nasser, to improve Egypt's economy and so forth, begins to build the Aswan Dam, which is an enormous project, an enormous building project, and he does it with, a, with American and British money. Uh, but over the course of time, Nasser actually begins to gravitate away from the West and more towards the Soviets and China, and the Americans and the British, to a certain extent, are infuriated. And the Americans announced to him, well, if you're going to be in their orbit, you don't need our money. We're cutting off all the funding for the Aswan Dam, which he desperately needed. So he strikes back and he nationalizes the Suez Canal, which was critically important for world shipping for all countries in the world that shipped, which had been built by the British at the end of the 19th century. The powers on the West, the French, the British, the Americans, can't allow this to stand. They can't allow him to nationalize the Suez Canal. And at a certain point, the French and the British come to Israel and they say, we're going to attack and we need you to be the people that put boots on the ground. In other words, Israel's now recognized by the French and the British as being a sufficiently powerful fighting force uh, that they are now being asked to help, as opposed to 1947, 48, 49, when everybody thought, oh my God, this little country is never going to be able to hold on, when the State Department had told Harry Truman, don't recognize Israel, because if you do, it's going to go down, and then you're going to have to send soldiers in to defend it. And now the French and the British are turning to Israel and saying, help us do this. It's a very quick war. It lasts about 10 days. Uh, Israel loses about 231 soldiers. Egypt loses between 1,500 and 3,000, depending on whose figures you believe. And Israel gets a couple of things. First of all, it captures the entire Sinai Peninsula, and it opens up its own access through the Straits of Tehran. The Straits of Tehran are that narrow seaway at the very, very bottom of the Red Sea, through which all Israeli ships had to pass if they wanted to go to that part of the world without sailing all the way around Africa from the Mediterranean. And some of the most important shipments coming to Israel at that point in history, which only shows you how much history changes, uh, was oil shipments from Iran, which was a major partner of Israel's at that point. So closing off the Straits of Tehran, which blocks access to the Red Sea, which blocks access to Eilat, Israel's southern port, was a hugely problematic for Israel also, which is why it also had a vested interest in participating with the French and the British in wresting control of the Suez Canal away from Nasser. At the end of the day, the United States forces Israel to give back the Sinai, but in exchange for that, the United States makes Israel a promise, which will become very important later in Israel's history, as we'll shortly see. The United States makes Israel a promise that if Egypt should ever again close the Straits of Tehran, that that will be considered an act of war and America will come to Israel's defense. And France makes a similar promise. Should the Straits of Tehran be closed, France will have Israel's back. 
And we'll see how that plays out when we get to 1967. But a lot has changed now. Israel now has access to the Straits of Tehran and promises that it will stay open by the Americans and the French. It's very clear to the entire world and to the Israelis themselves, by the way, that they have a highly professional army that now is being sought after by other powers. And Israel suddenly is a player on the international arena in a way that it wasn't before. So we've seen that in the 1950s, Israel has developed a much more aggressive, proactive foreign policy in its relationship with Arab neighbors and the, form and the forming of Unit 101 at Ariel Sharon's command. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the Sinai campaign and Tehran. We've seen how Moshe Dayan's eulogy and the, uh, the, the words of Zev Jabotinsky from so much earlier are actually really very similar one to the other. One's a revisionist and one is a labor. Uh, but what they share in common is a lack of any willingness at all to fool themselves. They understand that the wells of Arab hatred for the Jewish state run very deep. And just how deep those wells of hatred run, we'll see in the next segment. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.